Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to episode number 361 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is February, excuse me, March 9th, 2015. February's already over, folks. Sorry about that. March 9th, 2015. We've got a big show for you talking about the first week of USC Spring Football. We're talking about the end of the USC regular basketball season. we got a little baseball talk, NCAA talk, with Dan Weber coming up later on the show, and Coach Harvey Hyde, who was at spring practice over the weekend. In the first segment, we want to talk all about that. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address. Or you can call the show 206-888-6755. Leave a brief voicemail. We'd love to play it. Or you can go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. Click on the left side of the page and leave a voicemail right from your computer. Again, please try to keep it brief. and We'd love to play it on the air for you. One week of spring football in the books. And we know Coach Harvey Hyde was out there. Checking out the team. Wanted to get his thoughts on that. What's up, Coach? How you doing? Well, Ryan, good morning to you. Uh, gosh, what beautiful weather in Southern California. Unbelievable. Saturday out there at Cromwell Field. Uh, it was a little warm. People had their umbrellas out. Uh, saw some of the guys, the uh, reporters, put their hats, and I said, guys, that's showing weakness. No <laughs> hats. you got to have your hat off you've got to be ready to play it's hotter somewhere in the world and it's colder somewhere in the world and we had a lot of fun but as you know ryan i like to sit by myself and observe practice as if i was watching practice myself as a head football coach and jot down notes on things that go well and things that we need to improve on and that's what i did saturday so it was a lot of fun Uh, the weather was beautiful and uh, it was just a great uh saturday well, before we jump into the details of what you saw, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Southern California Tickets. If you need tickets for anything, go to sctickets.com. Here in SoCal or across the country, you can call, also call them at 1-800-888-7287. Uh, Clippers, you want to get some Clippers tickets, things like that. we got spring training baseball, which I would love to go check out in Arizona or in Florida. So anything like that. And of course, the baseball season is coming up too. Check it out, sctickets.com, and they will hook you up. And, uh, Coach, yeah, so, you know, it was a warm day on Saturday. Uh, you know, they moved practice times around a little bit. They said it was supposed to be 11-something, and they moved it to 10-something, and then they moved it back to 12-something. They're, they're trying to to uh, get in sync with track uh, because they're sharing Cromwell Field and track practice. And so for us media members, we kind of have to sit in the, the stands there and so I just want to maybe get your overall, you know, your first impressions of just how practice is working down there before we kind of get into the meat of practice. Well, you know, first of all, I like the bleachers. I mean, over on the Kennedy field, uh, you have to stand in a certain area, and it's very difficult to see different parts of the field to watch the individual groups. And uh, you really, if you don't take your own chair after two hours or so, your legs start to get a little tired. and and it's not the same, but to be able to have a bleacher, I think that's wonderful. I've always said that maybe they could put bleachers up over on uh, the football facility. It doesn't have to be a lot. Back against the fence, back against the wall, maybe two, three rows, and 
and people can enjoy it. They don't have to stand and block each other's view, and it's very difficult. You, you put your chair down on the ground, and then someone stands in front of you. <laughs> so it doesn't really work. But uh, as far as, you know, one, one statement I do want to make about the practice facilities, and I know Dan Weber, Weber wrote a column or part of a column he mentioned it in it uh, this past uh, weekend. Last Thursday night, I had a show, USC Trojan Talk, that I do, and you've been on it many times, and uh, Pete Arbogast was my guest, and uh, he had been at practice during the week, and I made a comment. I said, Pete, why practice spring practice? on Cromwell Field. I mean, first of all, it's not a full field, and you, and you know that by watching. It only has one end zone and one goal post. I said, and it's dangerous to be over there because you have two runways to go up and down the sideline as far as for the, uh, the paths of the long jump and pole vault and so on, and you have two pits on the other side. And on the non-end zone uh, part, you have all your jumping pits and so on, which is all done in, in uh, some type of... Uh, you know, slick material, the same material they use on the track. And down at the other end with a offensive line and defensive line workout, you've got the hammer throw, the shot put, and all of these different areas where you're really limited in what you can do on the, on the practice field. I said, normally, you know, uh, football, and, and I use this term, and Dan used the same term, at Alabama, your practice facility, no one gets on it year-round. That's for football, and that's where football works out and conditions. And and uh, it, the sod is absolutely fabulous, and it's it's uh, it's something for the football team, which generates most of the income for the athletic department. And it's a special place for special people that go for national championships. And I can't believe that this timing of the, the sod or the seating of the practice field was done or not timed where the team could use it for a 15-day period during spring practice. It just I just blow my mind when I think about that. And even when I was a head football coach, I would have never stood for that. And uh, I know there's difficulties in doing things, but you take the Rose Bowl, they sodded their field five times last year. They sodded their field within a 10-day period between the Rose Bowl game last year and the national championship game, not the national championship game, but the year before the national championship when held there last year, but the, when they had the national championship game there two years ago, in 10 days, they had a new field in perfectly. And they didn't even need to do it. That you'd think, why does it take so long to have a practice facility ready for your football team? I just blow my mind on that because of the injury factor too. And one player did go and slide on his butt, and when he hit that uh, the track, and and that could have injured himself. I just don't I don't understand that. But uh, as as uh, I just don't I, I don't have any other words to put into it. it just doesn't make sense to me. I, I, poor planning or whatever. But I wanted to make that comment. But uh, well, coach, at you practice. Don't... The, the, huh? Speaking of the field, though, we were looking at it because they did their their winter workouts where they're just throwing the football around. They did those on Cromwell Field too, the track field. And we walked by Howard Jones, and Dan and I both commented and said, "Wow, the the field looks great. It looks like it's in great shape." And then they completely tore it up. So I'm not sure why. I mean, I'm no grass expert, but and Dan usually kind of pays attention to this stuff. But when we walked by, it looked like it was in great shape. But it's been completely torn up now. And I know they're trying to expand Brian Kennedy. There's a lot of construction going on. They just finished that whole walkway uh, between you know where the track is and where uh, 
uh, Howard Jones is. Um, it's really nice. It's kind of you know they they put in all kinds of landscaping and stuff. Um, so you can it's it's wide now. You can walk through there. But there there there's a building being constructed across from Brian Kennedy Field. They're supposed to expand that somehow, and I don't know what the timing is and all that. So I don't know if it has anything to do with the construction and stuff. But to me, we looked at the field; it looked great, and then it was completely torn up, and I I, I don't know why. I have no idea. <clears throat> I, ha- I have no idea with the thought behind that whatsoever. But to me, uh, it's just a priority. Spring practice is a, is a priority. It's when you make your team. It's when you uh, get out there and you get into the rhythm. Myself, uh, I would have rather just got buses there, dressed in the regular locker room, bust over to the Coliseum, which USC owns now, practiced in the Coliseum. We have more field, more area, get in the environment, walk out, walk up the tunnel, don't shower at the Coliseum, get in your bus and drive back and shower at school. Uh, at least that gives you an opportunity to get 15 days of good workouts in without having to switch your times of practice and work around the, the pits and work around, the, you know, have only one goal post and all the different things that a Division One college football program normally doesn't have. So I would just make this one comment. That I know I'm signing critical, and to a lot of people that are listening are saying, that coach, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. It's a great big deal when you're not a priority and you're the Division One college team trying to play for the national championship. It is a big deal, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to know because other teams will point that out. So uh, let's move on. Yeah, and so and one of the other aspects of being on the field, you do get to sit in the stands, like you said, and watch. We can't take pictures throughout the whole practice, which kind of is a, a step backwards from where we were before on Howard Jones Field because of the track pass. Uh, practice aspect they don't want photographers kind of get in the way of of track athletes so we have limited options to take photographs of practice but that should be it's really only a temporary thing for the spring but we do get to sit in stands and you can kind of watch all the different position groups like coach had mentioned maybe uh point out some stuff that kind of stood out to you coach from from what you got to see this weekend well when i first went in in the uh, entrance for the media i don't know uh when you notice that it's on the east end of the of the field, Cromwell Field, you can't go in the same gate, so you park over. I don't know where you park, but I park in that parking structure that's got four or five floors. So you ought to walk all the way around to go in that entrance. Well, I was fortunate because that's where the offensive line was working. And I stopped right there, and I said, I want to observe, first of all, the offensive line, and I want to observe Bob Conley, the new offensive line coach. So I spent some time there, maybe 20 minutes there, 20 minutes watching the drill by myself. No one is going to walk way down there and stand and, and watch it. And I was pretty close to the drills. I really was. He was in the corner there of the end zone. And watching him coach and seeing the intentness of the offensive line and a little bit more of a bark in his voice, I liked it. I liked the attention he got from the players. There wasn't any players talking. They moved around quickly. Uh, they had his attention. Uh, he seems to me to be more of a, an aggressive type of offensive line coach, which I like. Now, he's not Tim Davis. Tim Davis was one of those that when Orgeron and Davis went with each other, they started it off with a fight between each other. Then they did the drill, uh, uh, which is great. Uh, but he's uh, got he's more vocal. And he's got their attention. I think the offensive line might be a little bit more aggressive. I, I can't tell because they didn't scrimmage or go live. 
but they got off the football and he demanded the uh, proper technique and he had the attention of the players. And uh, I like to watch the young player, Juma and Hensley. I, I liked their movement. In fact, I was surprised by Hensley, the way he moved around better and wasn't basically uh, intimidated not to take a turn. I like that. A lot of times freshmen are watching and they're afraid to take a turn. But he's willing to take a turn and jump in there. And and I like where they're playing Juma to at right tackle. I thought that was good. And I want to see basically where they had placed a lot of the, you know, players, new players, and how they moved uh, people around. It was good to see Jordan Simmons out there. Now, he hadn't been out there for a long time, but he was out there, took some turns, and uh, I thought that was good. I liked that. Um, moved up then to the stands, and uh, uh, as I was observing it, I thought Pinner looked faster than what I could remember him in the past. Uh, he looked quicker, faster, faster. Did a great job uh, as far as, you know, they're only running four backs in the spring, so those guys get a lot of turns, and I think it's great. They get better. They get themselves in shape. If you don't run a lot, you don't get yourself in shape as a running back, and you got to read the holes and get through the line and break back against the grain, and, and I saw a lot of that out there. I think the most underrated receiver on the field out there, and you might not agree with me, Ryan, is Darius Rogers. I really think he plays hard. He makes great catches. Stevie Mitchell certainly is a has improved, and he looks like he's ready to play. Uh, I really like number seven. I think he's a great player. Uh, Dory Jackson was uh, missing because of a funeral he had to go to, so I didn't have a chance to uh, evaluate him and see with him, but he would have been on the defensive side of the ball all day Saturday. On the snapping drills, I think this is something I noticed, and it's only to mention positively something that I would make sure that if I was coaching, this would be done. During the seven-on-sevens and passing drills, the uh, the managers uh, snap the ball or throw the ball. And Ryan, you probably see this drill. They, they throw the ball back with a nice spin every single time right to the quarterback where you can relax, throw the football. And it, the timing is there with that type of pass. Now, when the team comes up, they're still having trouble with their snappers, which means uh, the ball is slower or it's not right in the middle. It's right or left. or The quarterback has to move around to do that. I never had a passing drill or a drill where the center, the first or second team center, didn't always work with the quarterbacks because they all come back at a different velocity. And you've got to have, when, when one center is down, they're blocking somebody, the other center's up there snapping the ball. Vice versa, you say switch the entire practice. So that quarterback and the center is getting practice snapping the ball. So I would make sure that the centers would be snapping the ball, not having a, a uh, manager throwing the ball perfect every single time to the quarterback. And it messes the timing of the quarterback up on the breaks. And when they're throwing to a spot, when the ball comes back perfectly in the drill, but then in the in the situation when you have a center, it's high, low, or slower. It makes a difference, a, a lot of difference when you have to adjust to a snap or it's not as fast or spinning properly as it should be. So that's one thing that I would uh, suggest. I'm not saying they're going to do it, and I'm, they'll have reasons why they don't do it, obviously, but that's just something I saw. thought the offense was a little ahead of the defense. 
as far as execution. And that never happens. That's unusual. During the spring, normally your defense is always ahead of the uh, – in the fall, the defense is always ahead of the offense. And I think Coach Sarkeesian mentioned that. The early part of the practice, the defense had its way with the – offense had its way with the defense. A uh, little bit concerned about the defensive front currently right now. Uh, I, I read articles in the paper where people said they were swarming them. I didn't think the defense ran that well on Saturday. Uh, they got to be quicker uh, than what they did. But I did enjoy watching them go through some stunt reviews, walk through some stunt reviews where it's, Maybe they're going to attack a little bit more this uh, coming uh, fall. Maybe they have to as far as because they don't have Elena Williams and some of these guys that could really get after it. Uh, The offense is exactly the same offense as they ran last year. So if you didn't go out to practice, uh, you can visualize that in your your mind. Um, And I thought the place kickers – had pretty good distance in their kicking. One thing you hear me always talk about, got to be able to kick the ball in the end zone. So I think they're going to have pretty good condition there, but they didn't spend a lot of time doing it, so really uh, couldn't tell much. So uh, that's basically an evaluation, a quick evaluation of what I saw on Saturday. All right. Um, well, we have a couple of questions, too, about what's been going on there. Uh, this first one's a voicemail question, Coach, about Adore Jackson, so we'll kind of get your thoughts on him. Hey, Coach, this is Tarek in Salt Lake City. And as we're beginning spring practice, just wanted to ask this question. You know, uh, there's a lot of noise, a lot of talk has been going on about how we're going to use Adore as a three-way player, but didn't his Sarah predecessors decline basically because they were used too much um, rather than just letting them focus on one thing? They were trying to do multiple things, which led to more injuries and not as productive then uh, Robert Woods and Mark Easley not having as productive careers. I'm just saying, I know that Adore can do all these things, but wouldn't it just be better to have him on defense and use other players who maybe aren't starting to, who have that kind of speed to be kick returners? And we have plenty of receivers with talent to give them, you know, the, the chance on offense. Uh, just looking forward to your thoughts on that. Love the show. Fight on. Thank you very much, Tark. I'll tell you, um, you're thinking just as I am, uh, and I agree. I, I think Adore's a great athlete, and you try to get him on the field, and uh, they get him on the field all the time, but you burn out a kid, and you only got so many reps that you can do. And uh, I, I and I really think that when you when you play a kid too much, you try to get too much out of him, you're really telling Stevie Mitchell, you're telling a lot of these other guys, hey, you're not good enough to play, and you have morale problems to go along with that. Uh, I've discussed that before. I think Dory Jackson can be a lockdown corner. He should play defense every single play. And, I, and I'm and i not against him being on special teams. I think he's really exciting. I think he's really explosive as far as returning kickoffs or punts. And uh, But that's it. I, I wouldn't have him over on the offensive side of the ball. I know Sark says he's very explosive, and you never know what's going to happen when he catches the ball. Yeah, all of that, all of that's true. But you also have other guys that that can happen with. So uh, I think you have better team morale. I think it'd be a better corner if he doesn't have to think about the offensive reads and what he has to do on offense. I think he uh, he'll be more physically ready to play football. 
He'll be more relaxed in what his assignments on the defensive side of the ball, be a better leader on one side of the football rather than going back and forth on both sides of the football where, what am I? Am I a defensive specialist, an offensive specialist? What am I? I'm a defensive star. That's what I want to think about. I'm a leader on defense like Suva Craven. He's an impact player. You've got to have impact players on defense. So I agree with you 100%. Myself, that's what he would do. He'd be a corner, return kickoffs, and punts, and that would be the extent of his offensive play. All right. Uh, thanks for that one. Let's see. Let's go to – you actually mentioned, Coach, about the attacking defense, and Melvin had a question about that. Um, now that USC closed the recruiting this year with some great defensive players, do you think that the defensive coordinator, Justin Wilcox, will reevaluate his coaching schemes and strategy and try to come up with something different uh, than last year's defense? Well, I don't know what he's going to do. It didn't look like he was doing much difference. But, I, but I'll tell you, you've got to attack more. You've got to mix it up a little bit more. My feeling is, that's my feeling. Uh, you have different philosophies. Uh, I don't think you right now have the team speed on defense in the spring that you need to have in the Pac-12. Uh, the kids play hard, don't get me wrong, but you don't have a lot of players out there playing currently right now. And myself, in looking at the defense, I really, I really think you're going to have to depend on a lot of young players that are coming in to fill in at the defensive line position or back up, get a lot of reps. I thought guys flew around, but it wasn't at the speed I think that's necessary to, to win as they're talking about <clears throat> winning a Pac-12 championship. Uh, yet they can develop into a team that can uh, play great defense by giving multiple looks. Uh, confusing the defense offense a little bit more. Matchups uh, where no matter what happens, you got two on one and a rush in the gap, and so on, and it's very difficult to block. You got guys thinking, which causes problems. I, I think the secondary is not going to be bad. I think once you get that secondary put together uh, with the players out there, Seymour had a nice day on Saturday, and you got Marshall coming in, you got Plattenberg, you got guys back there that can play. You really do. McCray. Uh, and others. You just got to build the pride in the unit in the secondary to have that pride and communicate together and uh, and play football and then give them help by putting rush on the quarterback so the quarterback doesn't have all day to throw the ball. When you have all day to throw the football, and not that, not that SC has given them all day to throw the football, especially in the first couple of quarters when their defensive line was ready to go at Leonard Williams, but as they wore them down at the end of the game, you couldn't get the complete rush on the defensive front that you needed, and uh, the quarterback had more time to throw. So, uh, yeah, I think that they could be a complete defensive unit, but they've got to adjust a lot of things that they're doing and go after people more and utilize their defensive schemes. I agree. All right, Coach. And we had what, we had a comment from uh, Jeff and El Segundo I wanted to kind of leave you with before we wrap up the segment. Um, he said, this is Jeff and El Segundo. As Brian, I think he means me, it's, it's Ryan, Jeff, but that's okay. As Brian, Coach Hyde, and Dan provide excellent insight for Trojan fans, Coach Hyde provides something special to the podcast. The coach often points out things that transcends college football. I appreciate Coach Hyde's reminding us to listen to our, quote, better angels of our nature. I've touched every podcast around Thanksgiving when the coach asks us to call someone. I'm thankful for Coach Hyde's genuine out, outreach to remind us of the most, uh, the more important things in life. 
So that's Jeff and Elsa Goodell with some kind words for you, Coach. Well, thank you. I, re- I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I try to give you my uh, views on what I see. I don't, I don't uh, hide them. I try to be honest when good things are happening. I always say good things are happening. And, you know, everybody wants to hear good things that are happening. You want to hear also things that uh, I see as far as a coach. And remember, coach always looks at things on how we can get better. What aren't we doing right? What do we need to get better at in every day and every way? Uh, and that's why maybe sometimes you, as a listener, might think, gosh, he's negative. No, I'm not negative. What I'm looking at is really, hey, we're not forming the huddle right. Let's get the huddle form right. Or let's get lined up on the line of scrimmage properly. We're, we're moving guys around. Well, what is this all about? Well, when you, when you, everything's going right, you don't have much to say. You say, everything was great. Go, goodbye. No, you look at how you can get better. Your line splits were right. The uniforms were right. Why are these guys' jerseys hanging out? Or why are we wearing different color socks? Or why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? I remember one time when I was coaching at UNLV, the first day of spring practice, these guys came out and their socks were hanging down like they were socks that they bought it. I don't want to say, I maybe they didn't buy them. Maybe somebody gave them away. And, <laughs> And the equipment guy, I called the equipment guy, said, what is the deal? What is the deal with these socks? Looks like they're, they're 20 years old. They're, the guys couldn't, they pull them up and they drop down to their ankles. I said, go in and bring out a whole box of socks right this minute. And I had a break. I had everybody sit down. We put on brand new socks. And I said, from now on, we're going to look like a team. We're going to look like a team before we become a football team. And we're going to all wear the same stuff and the same height. And we're going to look like we're all belong on the field at the same time. And we're going to do these things. And this is the way we dress. You take your helmet off when I tell you to take your helmet off. You do this, you do that, you do that. We give you all the water. We love you. We take care of you. But we're going to act and be like a football team. These are the little things you notice as a head football coach. And if you let them go... What happens? It goes a little farther and a little farther and a little farther, and you got more termites in the program eating away at the building. So you got to nip it right at the beginning. And all of a sudden, the trainer understands that all the ankles are taped. I used to have ankle tape checks, which means on practice, you know, sometimes kids are late to practice. So they just don't go in the training room. So we'd be stretching out there. Now, when we stretch, I had every possession coach stand with their players. So they had a chance to walk around and talk to them a little bit before practice started. And then I'd say, okay, guys, ankle check. I didn't do this every day. And their coaches would go around and they'd say, coach, uh, so-and-so's not taped, so-and-so's not taped, so-and-so's not taped. But I'd always get two or three guys that weren't taped. Now, this is for prevention of injury, not that they're hurt. But I want them to get hurt. If they twist their ankle, it's not as bad as what it could have been. So I'd send those guys over and get taped, and then later on they'd have to pay a price for that. But eventually it gets through to them that it's not a punishment to get taped. It's a way to help you as far as an athlete not get injured. And eventually if you, if you, if you stay on these type of things, eventually they start to learn that I'm not going to get away with certain things. I'm going to wear the right socks. I'm going to pull them up. I'm going to tuck my jerseys in. And a lot of people say, oh, those things don't make a difference. Well, a lot of programs think they don't make a difference. But in my programs, I think they all 
make a difference. If you look like a football team and you practice like a football team, but looks like a football team, you are a football team. And those are the little things I observe when I go to practice. When you have a drill, I say, okay, uh, let's see how they're doing. Well, that guy went 10 yards. Now, this guy, every time he goes, he goes six yards. He's losing four yards every rep. Those are the things I look at, and those are the things I talk to the players and the coaches about. Whenever you go, you go full speed. You don't go half speed. You don't learn anything half speed. The game's not played in half speed. It's played in full speed. And uh, there are little things, uh, you know, as a position coach, you, you get wrapped up in your coaches and some of your players, and sometimes you forget the little things. But as a head coach, when you walk around and you look, you don't miss a thing. You can't miss a thing. And you don't necessarily correct him during the drill. You correct him, and you go to your assistant coach first that knows what the rules and regulations are that I've set forth. And you say, you know, you got to come down more, and your kids are not dressed properly. And I let him know he's responsible for that, as well as he is responsible for his kids academically too. Now, a lot of cases, a lot of cases. Excuse me for rambling. In a lot of cases. <laughs> But I'm telling you things that maybe you don't ask me. A lot of cases, yeah. people say, oh, the academic advisor's in charge and making sure all the academics are, are taken care of. No. The position coach is in charge of the academic part of it as well as the athletic part. He works with the academic advisors in making sure all of his players are doing what they're supposed to do and do it properly. And if he has to go and check on them to see if they're in class or whatever they're doing, that's part of it. There's no specialist. You've got to learn to do it all. And those kids appreciate when you do it all. You just don't yell them on the field and then let them go and let somebody else take care of them. No. You take care of them all the time. I'm going to stop there because I can talk all day. Well, it was a compliment that turned into one of those Harvey Hyde stories, which was great, Coach. But we, we always appreciate the insight. That's why we love to have you on the show. You get a uh, very different perspective from being a former coach, and it's, uh, it's always informative. So, Thanks again, Coach, for coming on. We'll look forward to seeing you out of practice, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Hey, Brian, thank you. And for you guys to call in, we uh, thank you very much because that gives us things to talk about. So take care of yourself. Have a great week, and be careful. All right. Thanks, uh, everyone. Back in one minute, going to talk to USCFootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. Oh, man. What's wrong? It's my marketing guy. I can't get in touch with him, and I'm still waiting on simple website changes to get done. Who are you using? Uh, Some cheap and easy website company. I just can't get results. It's so frustrating. I never had that problem with my marketing company. I use Circle Marketing. They're always available, very friendly, and do great work. My business has seen improvements. They handled my website, online ads, and much more. Go to CircleMarketing.com and see if they're right for you. CircleMarketing.com, huh? Well, I'll go there right now. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. 
We are back on the Peristyle Podcast. We have uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber joining the show. He was at the, the first week of USC spring practice. Wanted to kind of pick his brain and see what he thought uh, the first week, how it went for USC. And three of the 15 practices are down, Dan. Welcome to the show. And uh, how's everything going? Well, uh, good. Good. I think we're getting there. I, I think some, you know, you saw some things. Uh, again, two practices without pads. Just helmets and one with shoulder pads. But you, you saw some things that uh, that you didn't know until you saw them. You saw Lamar Dawson. Uh, I watched him the other day in pads, and they were running a sweep, and he just flows to the football so well. And you realized he always had that ability to go sideline to sideline, and uh, that's something they didn't have last year, actually. Uh, so, you know, so that's a that's a really good thing. Uh, I think you know, not having Trey Madden is going to give some of Anuku a chance to uh, basically line up as a, you know the big, big, big uh, you know running back and uh, and learn that position and and get in kind of in sync a little bit with the offensive line, and it's going to give the offensive line a chance to really run some power, you know, power run plays. And I think those are the things that let him down last year, and I think this will give him a chance to, to really work on that. And uh, I thought that looked good the other day. Uh, I think the defensive line, you know, they're down to three of the six rotating regulars, not counting the incoming freshmen, and they may need to step it up a little bit, and that's, that's what we hope they do. And, and I think the one other thing is you understand now with when you lose – even with all the talent at wide receiver, you lose three of your four top receivers. Uh, the young guys have a way to go in, in terms of stepping up and, and, and showing some maturity. And uh, it isn't, you know, just because, you know, you know how talented that Juju Smith and um, uh, Stephen Mitchell and, you know, Darius Rogers or Jenny Harris, uh, Isaac Whitney could be. Uh, they're uh, they're getting a real battle from a secondary that has decided it's time to step up. The secondary become very physical, very uh, much more playing to their athletic abilities, and and not nearly as they say conservative or kind of fra- afraid as last year's team seemed to be, and uh, you know not making plays on the ball. Uh, so probably those general themes jump out at you when you, you watch the first week. All right. Um, good stuff there. We wanted to talk about stuff that was going on with spring practice, and I think the questions we have, Dan, this week will kind of bring some of that out. So we could just maybe go to some of these questions and uh, and start answering about the the team. And if there's anything else you want to interject about spring practice, we also want to talk. No, about that's, that's yeah. I thought you know you can tell the difference with uh, a coaching staff going into its second season from the first season. Uh, I think uh, look more efficient. Uh, you know, uh, more ability to to uh, do some co- you know do the kind of talking and coaching during practice and still get everything done. Uh, and I think that's uh, it's still kind of a young team, and I think that really uh, that really matters. Okay, uh, well, let's go to Stephen Poway. He has a few questions. The first couple are quick. Um, there was some talk of that Jalen Green had left the program. Have you seen him at practice? Uh, yes, we've we've 
We've seen him there. He's what, what's that quote, Dan? The rumors of my demise are vastly or exaggerated, or something like that. Yeah, I think that was. Uh, I don't. You know, it won't be the first time. It won't be the last time that you have those uh, those rumors that goes from point A to you know point Z. Uh, you know, in about ten seconds. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so. Yeah, I mean, he's getting, uh, you know, uh, the same as last year, third team, you know, reps or second team reps. Actually, they're splitting up some of the second team reps. So, uh, so, uh, and he's getting, a, I think, one one series uh, the other day got in with the first team uh, guys. So, uh, um, you know, that hasn't changed at all. I think he decided he really wants to give quarterback a shot, and they're going to give him, uh, you know, give him a shot at quarterback. And it's important that, I think he he just offers so much with this team, and uh, we'll see how you know how it works on offense. I mean, I, I, you hate to keep saying, "Wow, it's great to have him on uh, on uh, on the scout team," and you don't want to do that to somebody, you know, necessarily. But it is great to have him on the scout team. He's so athletic, and he so represents you know the kinds of quarterbacks they're going to be playing against. That uh, you know that is a terrific value for him. And then the second one he had, uh, Sua Cravens is listed on the official USC roster as a quote-unquote safety. Has he moved back there, or is he still at linebacker? Yeah, I wouldn't pay too much attention to like the quote-unquote official rosters all the time <laughs> in terms of height, weight, and even position. No, I mean, you talk to him, and he just says, no, I'm an outside linebacker. He doesn't even, you know, last year, you know, he was clearly a hybrid. Uh, but this year, not 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 a hybrid at all. He's a uh, he's an outside linebacker. And then the last one from Stephen Poway. He said, given the uncertainty at tight end, now with only three players listed on the roster at at that position, two of whom are really questionable to play now, and the third's not even a scholarship player. Is Steve Sarkeesian making any plans to move players from other positions to tight end? I know we have incoming freshman recruit Tyler Petit coming in the fall, but doesn't it seem prudent to find someone else right now to get reps at the position during spring. Some of Anuku might fit the bill or someone else. Kindly regards, kind regards, Stephen Poway. I don't know. Can Stephen Poway play, play tight end? <laughs> he might be a... No, I don't, they, they don't have any really easy moves I don't see on, on this roster right now. I mean, you know, Soma, he may not be quite six, you know, six feet tall. Uh, uh, I don't see anybody that can line up on the line of scrimmage with his hand down. Uh, that just doesn't, you know, unless you're strictly going to go, you know, Stanford on us and put a, you know, a tight end there, put, you know, somebody like uh, when he was a freshman, Max Turk, you know, became a tight end for the Washington game, I guess it was, and basically, uh, you know, was a blocker. Nathan Gertler did the same thing. Now, if you're going to do that, uh, you know, you have some offensive linemen you could put there, but to play tight end as a tight end, uh, no, uh, not on this roster now. Does that eliminate the possibility when they get here in the summer that Porter Dustin and uh, Osa Messina might not, you know, both of them get a shot and see if one of them is comfortable there? Uh, I think that could that could happen. Uh, you know, and we'll see. You know, by that time, what what's happened, what's played out with Bryce Dixon. Uh, but I wouldn't say that, you know, two of them are, are doubtful. Uh, I don't think Jalen Kirkpatrick is, is, is doubtful. I think he's, uh, you know, he's going to work his way back, and it, it might take uh, 
they take a little bit. Uh, you know, Connor Spears does, doesn't have a scholarship, but he's 6'6", 240. He can run, he catch the ball, and he played in the Ivy League. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of guys that play in the Ivy League, and then you see him playing in the NFL. So I don't think that's necessarily, you know, an eliminator, you know, you know for him. But, uh, yeah, I think the tight end position, as Sark said, uh, one year at Washington, when they didn't have any, they went with uh, uh, a fullback, uh, so two running backs, two you know legitimate backs, and then they uh, uh, ran with a uh, three wides, and uh, I think that could happen. I don't, I don't think there's any question, and they could go four wides more often. Although I think they really do want that one more blocker at the point of attack. Uh, so uh, I think you know right now it would just be. Even for you know for Sark, I think it would be just guesswork as to you know how that's all going to play out. I just don't think on this roster that there's anyone who's a natural fit uh, to to move into that spot, which is why they haven't moved anybody into that spot. And uh, just I, I had a couple of Twitter questions too, Dan, about this, and I, I think well, Christian Rector came up. He definitely played some tight end. I think he's about the right size and weight. Um, Noah Jefferson, the, the defensive lineman coming in from Nevada, I think he's closer to three bills right now, so I just don't think he would be the right fit. No, like he yeah, did that I think he's even bigger. I think he was a basketball player, and I think he's probably pretty athletic. But he'd be one of those guys that'd be just strictly a blocker, and if you haven't been blocking people, even then, I'm not sure, you know, that, that that's what you want to do. So it's gonna be, I, don't, I think it'll be interesting uh, to see, but I think they went out of their way to say it's could be uh, taking a look at Porter or Osa. So I don't think that's off the table at all. And, you know, one of those guys might find a home there. Who knows? I mean, you know, I mean, I think they could probably, those two could almost, you know, play, you know, five positions if you wanted them to or needed them to. So uh, so that may be, that, that would be probably the first place I'd look. All right. Uh, thanks for that one. Let's see. We have a question from Dan for Dan. He says, thanks for putting the podcast together every week. I know spring practice just kicked off and most of the incoming freshmen aren't on campus yet. But do you have any early predictions for who will be redshirted? Sark seems to be successful pitching early playing time, especially to the four and five star kids. But at some point, he may want to redshirt uh, some of them to spread out the depth. Yeah, I- I think we could kind of guess that some of the kids that haven't played a lot of football, uh, and there are, you know, there are a couple of those kids uh, that you would say, you know, and they're at a position where there's, there, there are pretty many players, like, you know, in the typical offensive lineman spot, you know, where you get, you know, your bulk of your red shirts, I think. Uh, um, you'd have to look at the quarterbacks and say you you don't need to put them, if you don't need to, absolutely play them, you probably won't. Uh, you know, I mean, Cody redshirted, uh, Max redshirted. One would guess that, you know, the couple of quarterbacks will redshirt. Uh, how it plays out everywhere else, I don't I don't think it's it's all that clear. I would say in the, you know, anybody in the secondary, maybe uh, they may have enough numbers in the secondary uh, that, uh, that, you know, one or two of those guys might have a possibility of, uh, you know, of, of redshirting, but uh, I would let I would let it play out. I, I don't know that you need to make that decision. I mean, you know, you'll be in October 
and you still may not have made that decision yet. So I think for us to make that decision now, absent knowledge of, uh, you know, who's not going to be available, who's going to be hurt, who's, you know, at what position and all that, I, I just think that's just, uh, that, you know, might be a fun little mental exercise, but I'm not sure that it's uh, of a great deal of, of value at this point. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Dan. And uh, it's, I think just in general, though, like if you look at, do they need anyone to step up and play on the offensive line? Probably not. We've seen Chuma Doga do some good things. Uh, may, you know, of the the four offensive linemen coming in, maybe he would be the guy that doesn't redshirt. I mean, Isaac Whitney right. can't redshirt. He's got two to play, two. They're going to want him to come in and play right away. Maybe the blue shirt guys, you know, Clayton Johnson and uh, Johnston and uh, um, what's it called? One of my, oh, uh, Deontay Burnett. You know, maybe the blue shirt right. guys redshirt. We saw a blue shirt redshirt last year. So, yeah, we'll see. But you talk about guys like Port Augusta and Osa Messina. They got a chance to get on the field on both sides of the ball. So the odds of them redshirting, I would say, would be even less. But like you said, it's just we don't really know. I think there's some generalities. Like a Ricky Town will, will most likely redshirt it, you know, unless something crazy happens. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we really know at this point. It's just hard to say. They're not even on campus yet. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I would think you could – you wouldn't be wrong if you kind of went with the general theme of uh, offensive linemen, defensive backs, where you have a number of players uh, returning and you have a number of guys on scholarship and quarterbacks. Uh, all of those would be pretty general, you know, generalities that are almost, uh, you know, good chance to be true. But in any specific case, I just don't think we know. I, I think we really, you know, we're going to wait and see. All right. It'll do it. Yep. Thanks for, uh, let's see, that was from Dan. Thanks for that question, Dan. Um, we go, hey, Ryan, uh, Mac24USC here from Canada. We love the international questions, Mac. Thanks for that. My question for the podcast is, do the USC football players study and have classes through spring ball and the regular season? And do they have summer courses to lighten the workload during the grueling season? Are they in class in September to December like regular students? Or is there an exception being athletes? Thanks and fight on. I think yes, yes, and uh, no. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they, they basically you have to be a full-time student or you can't play. So, uh, and I, I, I'm assuming it's still 12, 12 hour credit hours uh, is the minimum. But, uh, yeah, and they do uh, uh, schedule them uh, through the summer uh, in order to maybe not hit them so hard during the season. Uh, but yeah, you, and you have to have a cumulative number of hours at the end of each year. And if you haven't, you know, gotten, you know, gotten all those credits, you can't play, you know, the next uh, semester, that kind of thing. So yeah, uh, they do all of this, except the last one where they uh, they can't lighten their load so much that they're not a full-time student during the season, unless it's their last semester. And it's their final classes, uh, you know, the all-time favorite, you know, Matt Liner needed a ballroom dancing elective <laughs> to graduate. Uh, and that may never happen again either. I think that, I think from now on, if you're in, in school and you're going to graduate your last semester, you'll take some optional, uh, you know, maybe for a second minor or something like that. I'm not sure you're ever going to see anybody just take ballroom dancing. Although I think Marcus Mariota at Oregon was in that kind of, he was a very good student, obviously. He was in that kind of same situation, I think, last year where he had 
one or uh, you know almost nothing left to take in his final semester. And it, it, the one difference is, and you know, if uh, it sounds like Max not as familiar with the like the student athlete uh, you know, situation that they have that we have down here, at least that, the way it's supposed to work, um, there are some disadvantages depending on the school. If you're on a quarter system or a semester system, where USC, you know, players are in class before they even have a first game, and so there's a lot more work being dedicated to. Uh, the academic side, and they're they're prepared for a football game. Where schools on the quarter system, they might not have. You know, it could be the first few games they still don't have any, you know, fall quote unquote fall classes. So there's it does depend on the school on quarters versus semesters. You can it kind of runs a little bit differently. It could be an advantage or a disadvantage depending on which school you're at. Yeah, and I think it works both ways. I mean, I know, uh, and we were not sure last year whether they'd be able to handle the uh, early morning practices while they were in class right away, because Sark, you know, could come from Washington with a, on the quarter system, and they didn't start the class till the, you know, first of October, and so they hit them for a month, and basically they could practice whatever time they wanted. They weren't going to class, and you could, you know, sleep in the rest of the day. Uh, so that was a little bit of a worry because that, that didn't get handled really well when Lane did it. Uh, the kids, especially the freshmen, really were having some adjustments to early morning practice and then going right to class. And uh, uh, but it certainly looks like they handled it well last semester. You know, the best uh, you know academic semester they've had at USC. The downside, I think, if there's an upside, where basically um, you're on the quarter system and it's like a uh, an extended summer camp through September when all they've got to do is football. The downside is you don't have students on campus, and uh, UCLA has uh, run into this a little bit in years when they're you know, not really excited about football, is that you know, the students aren't around for the first couple of home games, and, uh, and that could be a problem. So uh, you know, it could work both ways for you. It looks like they handled it well at USC last year, uh, so we'll see uh, you know, going forward. But... Uh, but it was a pretty good academic year for uh, for USC. All right. Uh, we had a couple more topics we want to get to, some NCAA stuff we want to talk about, but also uh, basketball and baseball, which has been kind of surprising. Um, I'll read you the basketball question first, and we can talk about that a little bit, and then baseball too. Uh, Earl in West L.A. says, I think uh, Dan read more into the size of the crowd at the final home basketball game than was actually there. The game is always a good draw because it's the fan appreciation game with lots of pregame activities, free giveaway items to fans uh, who attend. This includes the athletic department, marketing people giving gift cards to the first 250 students. Dan even said the crowd seemed larger than the normal, and the reason was the festivities and giveaways, not the expectation of a great basketball game. By the way, Pat Hayden did not look happy at Pauley Pavilion Wednesday night. Uh, Earl in West L.A. We, we also had a, a voicemail question from our, our regular USC basketball fan who wanted to know how far you think Andy Anthony will last next year <laughs> before they, they fire him. He's not real. Uh, he's yeah. not a big Andy Enfield fan at this point, as you know. Yeah, and I, I would say to Earl, no, no, I, I'm not saying that they were there for the, you know, the big basketball game, that, that they were there for any reason at all was pretty uh, amazing. And I think there has been a following that shows up at games that kind of shocks me. Some of those games are hard to watch, 
And if you really like basketball, you're asking yourself, what am I doing here? Uh, I think there are actually more people who have hung in there with USC basketball than, than, than I would have guessed, actually, the way, uh, you know, the way, way, the way it's been going. So, uh, yeah, so that wasn't, you know, a statement about how they were there to, you know, pull for the team to, you know, pull off a big upset or that. No, they were there for all the other reasons that, you know, are all cited. And I think USC's done a good job, as good as almost humanly possible, to try to build a following and try to get people coming and make it a nice, you know, with the DJ and the giveaways and all that kind of stuff. I think they've done, you know, USC's done its part in terms of all those kinds of things. Now they've really got to put together a good basketball, uh, you know, program. And, uh, and that hasn't happened, and it's hard to imagine you can't do that in Los Angeles when you just see prospect after prospect, you know, heck, you look at, you know, turn on an NBA game any night of the week, and if there's not at least one or two, you know, stars on the floor from L.A. Uh, who play their high school ball in L.A., uh, you know, you're not watching the right game because uh, it's just been amazing the run of, of talent, you know, basketball talent through uh, – through Los Angeles, and that USC has kind of, you know, been on the sidelines a little bit. You know, we had the, the Tim Floyd run, but uh, um, it's really, it's really a shame. But uh, yeah, I, I, as far as next year, I mean, I know there are people are handicapping that. I know that was one of the things people were talking about at practice uh, this week, and football practice was, you know, what kind of a start, what kind of a, you know, start in the Pac-12. Uh, you know, is there the possibility of uh, don't make it through the whole season? And, uh, you know, similar to bringing in Bob Cantu to take over. Uh, when, uh, you know, when Kevin O'Neill was uh, let go. I think next year, obviously, is, is absolutely crucial. They've got to get, they've got to do so many things better. And it's, it's got to be results. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, you're here, uh, you know, they, they pay you a lot of money, and you're here to win basketball games. And uh, by year three, uh, as, as Dan Hubbs has, has shown in baseball, uh, we'd like to see some results. And, uh, you know, if they could just follow the darn uh, example that this, uh, this amazing baseball team has, uh, has shown in the progress that they've made in, uh, in his third year, it's, it's just, uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's uh, spectacular how that team has played and uh, how they won't be beaten and you know they maybe don't have the absolute you know most talent in the country that doesn't matter in a game like baseball if you're uh, if you every player is in on every play and guys make every pitch and they don't they don't make errors and they uh, they hit with uh, people on base and they uh, hit you know with two outs they do all the little things right. They're just very tough-minded, and uh, you can't say enough good things about you know what this baseball uh, program is doing. Yeah, we actually had a baseball story go up on our front page, Dan, which is kind of crazy. But our our, our uh, intern uh, Evan uh, was down there. He actually announces the baseball game. He's a senior at USC, and so we were like, ah, we'll have him post on the message board a little bit, posted some stuff, which was fine, but it's like. I think that was a front-page-worthy story considering USC had that, I mean, crazy weekend where you beat two top seven, I mean, three top seven teams 
and somehow still only ranked number 13, which I don't get. But they, you know, it was a crazy run for the baseball team, and they, they look like they're legit. Well, I mean, what a week. Uh, and, you know, they've already beaten uh, three other ranked teams. I guess their only loss was in the ninth inning uh, to a, a ranked team as well. So uh, it, it's just a remarkable but uh, start. But, I mean, I, they had the best week in, in college baseball when you, you can beat, uh, you know, TCU, and, uh, who I think in one ranking was fourth. And then Vanderbilt was number one in, I think, both rankings. And then uh, – uh, UCLA was number six, so uh, I mean, that's almost unheard of uh, to do that on a weekend. Uh, and, and, and then to draw, I mean, almost 15,000 uh, for the USC-UCLA game uh, Sunday at Dodger Stadium is uh, and, uh, it's a good, good move by the Pac-12 network getting that game on the air and uh, it's just terrific uh, atmosphere. Uh, but uh, I think the rest of the country – uh, we're pretty surprised when they look at a crowd of 15,000 in L.A. and laid-back L.A. But this is a good, you know, it's a good college baseball town. I mean, USC. I know the uh, Vandy uh, coach was asked, uh, does, and he he played it down. But but somebody asked him. He said, when you look out there, they know uh, you know field, and you see those 12 national championships on the on the wall and that's pretty impressive you know and they've got a where they talk about 21 world series appearances and 12 national championships and that does catch you although he said i couldn't have anything to do with today's game you know they just beat us but uh uh it's wonderful to see usc getting back to you know what its heritage is and and one of its great athletic heritage is, is that baseball program and uh, and the way this team plays, you would really uh, you know recommend people come out and watch these guys play. Uh, it isn't that easy to do it when you're you know you've got 11 and something scholarships uh, you know at a private school like USC. Uh, you know with all the competition around. I mean Rice is private, Vanderbilt's private, TCU's private, but they're basically competing in areas where. You don't have six other schools that could go to the World Series like uh, like you do in L.A. that all have just great programs where it costs the kid maybe a fourth as much to go there as a walk-on with a partial scholarship. So uh, for them to be able to do it, uh, you know, under these circumstances is just truly amazing. And then we got one last topic for you, Dan. Uh... NCAA sanctions with the uh, Syracuse news coming out of you know the the years of. Uh, whatever they want to call it. I mean, the, the, the problems that they've had at Syracuse, people, you can Google it if you're not familiar with what's going on, but they got hit with, I think it was 14 scholarships. Bayheim's got to miss nine conference games, um, you know, vacated a bunch of wins. So JD and DC wrote in. He wanted to uh, get our take on, <coughs> excuse me, the assessment between the sanctions from USC and Syracuse. And he said, my take is the win reduction, scholarship reductions are comparable with controlled um, for the denominator, the starter, the total scholarships, the initial counters, etc., for the differences between football and basketball, the duration is shorter, and Bayheim's half-season ban is comparable to what PC probably would have faced had he stayed. However, they get to keep the 2003 national championship despite admitting and self-sanctioning for violations that go back to 2001. But most importantly, it sets a standard that head coaches are never held accountable if they simply deny any knowledge 
as uh, Beheim does, establish plausible deniability, this is just another house of cards. I believe if the NCAA insisted on the ability to put head coaches and only head coaches on the box, he's saying a polygraph test, uh, while testifying uh, about just personal knowledge of the specific violation, accusations under investigation compliance would be very, very simple. Coaches would actually make certain infractions did not take place, at least routinely. P.S. When is your book on the NCAA coming up, J.D. Uh, in D.C.? You just don't want to go there. I guess that's the problem. I mean, I don't want to think about it all that much. For example, clearly they bent over backwards so that they didn't have to take away the 2003 National Championship. They didn't do that with USC. They were... They bent over backwards to try to connect Reggie Bush and his parents to something the year before uh, uh, the year that they, you know, took everything away, uh, so they could take away that national championship from USC. So they did the exact opposite in the USC case. Uh, um, I think uh, they make it look like they say 12 scholarships, but they don't—they're not taking away 12 scholarships uh, like they took away 30 for USC because uh, they're allowed to have 10 every year. So they're basically they're taking three a year away. But if you have 10 this year and those 10 guys come back, you still have 10 next year and you still have 10 the next year. They're not allowed to have more than 10 on scholarship as opposed to 13. But that's a lot closer to a full roster in basketball than a USC team that ended up with uh, you know 44 originally recruited scholarship players available for some games against teams that could have 85. So USC got screwed a lot worse than, uh, than, than uh, uh, Syracuse now. If they would have said to Syracuse, you know, you're going uh, to lose scholarships every year like USC did, but Syracuse is not. They're only, you know, it would have been like if they'd have told USC, you're allowed to have 75 every year. Uh, from what I can tell, it 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 it, it doesn't hurt them quite the same way. Uh, they added that little twist in the USC case, uh, and uh, you know, in terms of uh, we're talking about, they had academic issues. They had uh, and long range, long running. We're talking ten years. Uh, academic issues, uh, paying guys to play, all the things that. You know that we're involving you know people very close to the program, uh, not comparable. I think so. I think you know they went after Bayheim, and I think part of it is they're the new guys in the on you know on the block in the ACC, and I don't think he's got any friends in the ACC. And I think if I looked at that penalty more than anything, the nine-game suspension to start the year, uh, the uh, uh, conference schedule next year. I think that was the point that they were trying to make is don't bring that Syracuse stuff, that Big East stuff, that, you know, down here. We're the ACC, and, and we don't like that. And so uh, I don't think Bayheim had any uh, – the NCAA kind of did the ACC's bidding. I don't think the ACC was in any fashion uh, going to protect uh, Bayheim. And, uh, you know, there's been a sense for a long time that – Syracuse has been getting players that other people couldn't get, couldn't take, weren't going to take, and this was a kind of a result of a of a sense of 
where the Syracuse program was. I like, I mean, the more I've gotten to know him, I, I like Bayheim in a lot of ways. But uh, there's been this sense of the Syracuse program that um, that stuff is is happening, and there are you know players there that you say, gosh, how did they, that guy end up there? Uh, that I think they they made him pay for it, but they still, again, with way more uh, involvement of university personnel and way more of the kinds of infractions like academic issues that the NCA says it's really down on. Uh, they still didn't hit them as hard as they uh, hit USC and kind of went, went around. I mean, they, they clearly, I think, made sure they weren't going to take their 2003 championship away from them. So and that would have been a biggie. If, if, if it's your only one in school history and you lose it, that's a really big deal. So I think there are some ways in which they protected Syracuse and uh, other ways in which they, uh, they kind of whacked Bayheim because they didn't like him. And then we'll have to see what happens with North Carolina because that seems pretty terrible. So it should it should definitely be worse than what Syracuse got, wouldn't you think? It, it should be, but uh, you can't even imagine that it will be with North Carolina because it would be again a repudiation of everything that the NCA you know has said about North Carolina's program. I mean, it was North Carolina and basketball was sort of a Penn State, you know, program that you put up on a pedestal and say you know they're doing it right and blah blah blah. It will be very hard, I think, for the NCAA. I mean, even though they came down on Penn State for a while, that didn't last for very long before they took everything back. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking that that's where it starts with the uh, with the uh, North Carolina case, although it's so ugly. It's two decades of academic, you know, total lack of uh, academic integrity. And in a case involving thousands of athletes, courses for thousands of athletes how do you cover that up and how do you say uh you know i mean you just can't imagine that they're they can penalize them as much as they should penalize them and again here you get into the whole issue of as with the usc case who do you penalize the current you know kids that had nothing to do with it you know the kids that are completely innocent you know that's a good way to penalize them you know (laughs) If they could only figure out a way to penalize the people that were really involved in uh, in all of that, and then you've got the you know the whole unfortunate you know thing of it started when Dean Smith was a basketball coach, and you know he he gets so much uh, you know credit you know for bringing in black players in the South and and doing things that maybe uh, say an Adolph Rupp didn't want to do right away at Kentucky, and uh, and should get a lot of credit for that. But I'm not sure that, you know, the idea that, well, now we've got to come up with fake courses to uh, to get guys through, uh, which also started at the same time or very soon thereafter, uh, was uh, was the way to go. So and it, it lasted, you know, for when, when something like that persists for two decades. And it was obvious, if you, you know, the basketball coaches say, well, we didn't know what was going on. Which sure looked like thousands of athletes did, who took advantage of it. So um, you, you do wonder uh, what's going to happen with North Carolina, and that's a. I'm sure they're sitting in Indianapolis trying to think, you know, how do we finesse this? So <laughs> we don't look so bad. We got to do something, but we really like North Carolina, and we're invested in them. I still remember <clears throat> we were checking on the Facebook page of one of the NCA investigators, and. On his Facebook page, there's the picture of him 
in his North Carolina cheerleader's outfit with his <laughs> arm around the Ram mascot. And you thought, huh, I wonder how hard they're ever going to be on North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, the, you know, North Carolina and NCAA both start with NC. And, uh, you know, there's this guy with this big NC on his, you know, I think, come on. But uh, USC, unfortunately, never had anybody, uh, any former cheerleaders or song girls or anybody as NCAA investigators. And uh, and that, that unfortunately turns out to be probably an actual, uh, you know, factor in, in these uh, NCAA cases. All right. Well, Dan, great stuff and uh, fun covering the first week of spring football. Got four more left. So we'll keep talking about it on the podcast every week. Thanks again for coming on the show. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Brian. Yeah, thanks to uh, Coach Harvey Hyde. Thanks to all the questions you guys have sent in. Be back uh, again next week with another show talking about USC Spring Football. Stay tuned for that. You've been listening to the Pear Style Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.